Welcome to this God-inspired message from Shofar Christian Church. Enjoy today's message. May you experience the presence of our Father and may you grow deeper in your relationship with Him. Maranatha is a way of saying, Our Lord, come. Our Lord return, and what I love about that, I'm not saying we must do it, I'm not saying we must change our vocabulary. What I just absolutely love about that habit that got themselves into is at the forefront of every conversation between believers was this hope, was this excitement. Jesus is coming back. Every conversation would kick off with, Our Lord, come. And I wonder what our lives would look like if every day we lived with this awareness, with this expectation. If we woke up in the morning and we looked at the sky, as it were, and we're like, is today the day? Is today the day? And every now and again we walk out and we're like, is He coming yet? We don't know exactly what it's going to look like when He comes. He gives us some hints. But exactly what's going to happen is far less important as the fact that it is going to happen. That He will come and we will not be able to miss it. Trumpets will sound. The whole earth will know that Jesus has returned. And so I'm wondering this evening, are we expectant? Are we expectant for Jesus to return? Are we hopeful? Are we going into every day? We're like, Jesus, today would be really cool if you could come back. Jesus, if you were to come back today, I know sometimes kind of when you've got a big exam or whatever coming up, then it's like, Jesus, if you were to come back today, that would be absolutely amazing. I know we pray those prayers sometimes. But imagine if we really every day had this desire, this dream, this hope in our heart. Jesus is coming. And so before we continue and we read the rest of this passage, I should have made one of those little triangle disclaimers. You know when you watch a movie and then some movies, a little triangle comes up at the beginning and it says, parental guidance is advised. It's like a little warning message. And kind of, if it's a bit of a more naughty movie, then it's, you know, it's more than just parental guidance. But this little triangle warning, something is about to come. And so maybe in one of my slides, I should have had a little triangle warning that said something along the lines of uncomfortable words ahead. been reading and meditating a lot on the sayings of Jesus recently, and I don't know, maybe in the next couple of weeks I'll do a whole series of uncomfortable Jesus. <laughs> because Jesus would not have been a very good modern-day politician. Modern-day politicians are all about spin. It's about putting the best possible angle on a thought, on an idea, on a situation. Jesus wasn't into that at all. Often Jesus would speak and people were like, I don't know if I want to follow this guy, and they wouldn't anymore. He was committed to speaking truth and life. He was committed to telling us the uncomfortable truths that we sometimes need to hear. It's a little bit like this. If I can ask, how many of us sitting here today want to go to heaven? My hand's up, way up there. How many of us sitting here today want to die? Suddenly our hands go down. You guys get a little bit of a, a problem we have here. We want to get to heaven, but we don't want to die. David Crowder wrote a cool song like that. Everybody wants to go to heaven. Nobody wants to die. And in order for us to get into heaven, one of two things has to happen. Jesus has to return, which would be pretty cool, or we have to die. 
And so, as we're praying, God, I want to go to heaven. I'm hopeful. I'm expectant for heaven. At the same side, there's a tension of, I have to die as well to get to heaven. I have to transition from this life to the next. And right now, I'm not so much looking forward to that. But I'm expectant. I'm hopeful for what comes after. And what we're going to read tonight a little bit has that same type of tension. Let's carry on in where were we? verse 4 of Matthew 24. So they've just asked Jesus, what is the sign? How do we know that the end of the world is coming, that you're coming back, all of these things? Jesus told them, don't let anyone mislead you. Many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah. They will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and threats of war. Other translations say rumors of war. But don't panic. Yes, these things must take place, but the end won't follow immediately. Nation will go to war against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in many parts of the world. But all this is only the first of the birth birth pangs with more to come. And so before I I carry on, perhaps I kind of want to throw this out there as well. Remember, I said warning, uncomfortable words ahead. So brace yourself, put on your seatbelts. If you this morning were to write down your expectation for the next 5 or 10 or 15 years of your life. I wonder what you would have written there. Hopefully, I hope, dreams. If you're not married, a spouse. If you're studying a degree, perhaps children, a thriving career, a family. Hopefully, you would have put all of those things in there, but I wonder how many of us put in maybe chaos. I wonder how many of us put in there maybe nothing that I expect. You see, as we read this passage, we have to understand the reality that... Who wants a bike like that? Okay. We have to understand this reality that at some stage, the clock is going to tick over and we're going to enter into this dimension. It might be... Tomorrow, next week, next year, next month. It might be a decade from now. It might be a hundred years from now. It might be a thousand years from now. I don't know. But at some stage, this is going to begin begin to come to pass. At some stage, these truths that God has spoken here are going to become reality. What is our expectation of God, of walking with God, of God leading and guiding us as we go forward? Going to get back to this point a number of times, but are we prepared should this begin to happen? What is our theology? What is our expectation of God? What does it look like for us to enter into a time when our world is turned upside down? So, a couple of things from this passage. Perhaps just before we get that, just to summarize, if you missed it, what Jesus is saying here, things are probably going to get a heck of a lot worse before they get a lot better. There is a time in our lives when things are going to go downhill and they're going to go downhill quickly. But I love what he says, I am the Messiah, they will deceive many. I'm today not going to get into all the prophetic and all of that type of stuff, which kind of 
couple of years ago, everybody was preaching about all the time, about deceivers and antichrists and all of those. It's not that they're unimportant. Jesus clearly mentions them. I just want us to focus on some other elements this evening. Because you will hear of wars and threats of war. And then I love this bit. But don't panic. But don't panic. That's easy to say for me and you, but if we were living in Kiev in the country of Ukraine tonight, this is a lot harder. If suddenly rockets are flying over our houses and hitting our neighbors and coming close to us and perhaps going to, then suddenly it's harder to say, don't panic. And yet Jesus comes and he holds this before us and he says, in the midst of all of this chaos that is coming, don't panic. Yes, these things must take place. And this for me is a challenge. It's a challenge in my theology. It's a challenge in my understanding of God. Because if I'm looking at Kiev, and let's just for a moment forget which side of the fence we're on, who we're in favor of. If we're looking at that as Christian, we're seeing this brokenness. We're seeing this heartache. We're seeing this destruction. And a part of our prayer has to be that God would intervene. A part of our prayer has to be, God, would you make peace? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. I want to be a peacemaker. I want my prayer to be a peacemaking prayer. And don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that what we're reading here, Ukraine is the start of. It might be, it might not be. I'm not saying it is. But what I am saying is at some stage, the clock is going to tick over. And no matter how much we fast, no matter how much we pray, God is going to say, these things must happen. There's going to become a time where God is going to say that, and I wonder, I hope I'm going to be sensitive in the spirit enough to hear him say that, that now is not the time to pray for peace. Now for his kingdom to advance, for his purposes to come to pass, it is time to pray about war. Jesus says these things must happen. No matter how much we fast, no matter how much we pray, there's going to be a time when nation is going to turn against nation, when there are going to be wars and threats of wars, and we're not to panic in those moments. These things must take place, but the end won't follow immediately. Nation will go to war against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in many parts of the world. That doesn't say we mustn't extend aid. It doesn't say we mustn't help. It doesn't say we mustn't give what we can to support. But God is saying those things are going to come to pass. And then here's the kicker. But all this is only the first of the birth pains with more to come. It's easy once again to say, but you know, if you're living in Kiev, if we were in Kiev or any Ukrainian type of area or any war-torn place, there are a number of them across the world. And we're living in fear of our life literally every night. Then it's harder for someone to say, hey, don't worry. It's only going to get worse. This is just the beginning. And then Jesus carries on. And in a sense, we, wait, before we do that, I've got this, this post from Louis Giglio, some of us may know of his ministry, and just this Instagram thing I, I read recently. I love what he said here yeah, just a couple of days ago. Given the current state of affairs and the scriptures, we need less preaching on how God wants us to avoid suffering and more preaching on how God wants to empower us 
to endure suffering well. And so I'm wondering if we were to be in that place, if for argument's sake we were to wake up tomorrow and nation is turned against nation and there are walls all over the place and we're not stuck at the south point of Africa, you and I are stuck in the middle of war. What would happen to our theology? What would be our expectation of God in that space? You see, it's a little bit like we do in some of our evangelism training. We tell people, you know, if we say Jesus is like a parachute. Here is his parachute, Jesus, and he is going to make your life better. So get on the plane with a parachute. An hour or two into the flight, you know, suddenly my flight's not better because it's uncomfortable. I can't lie down so nicely. This chair is small already, and now I've got this parachute. Right, let me just take the parachute off for a while. It's, it's not that important. This plane seems it's okay. You see, if we tell them the parachute is there to make your flight better, and the flight doesn't become better when I'm wearing the parachute, I take the parachute off. If we're saying to people, listen, this plane is really dodgy. It's most likely going to start falling out of the sky at some moment. But here is a parachute. And they get on the plane, and now you're wearing that parachute. It's a little bit uncomfortable, but you know what? I don't care. I'm not going to take it off because I know this plane might come falling out of the sky. Any moment, the captain is going to say, now is the time to jump. And if it's a little bit uncomfortable, if I can't sleep so lacquer, it doesn't matter. And so if we're coming to Jesus with the expectation that our parachute is going to make us more comfortable and we hit a space where it's not more comfortable suddenly following Jesus. What do we do? Do we throw the parachute off or do we realize the parachute's purpose isn't to make our life more comfortable? This parachute's purpose is to save our lives. And so are we prepared? Are you and I prepared for when the clock ticks over and the events begin to turn? Is your faith, your worldview, your expectation of who God is? If you today were in Ukraine, would your faith fail? If you today were in Ukraine and somebody comes and your family next door gets annihilated by a missile strike, what would your faith say about that? Would we say, no, God, you're not real? Or would we be grounded in the faith and be able to process that situation knowing that we serve an eternal God? You see, these things must take place. They're going to happen at some stage. Maybe in our lives, maybe not. But if it does happen in my life and your life, listen to me. My hope, my prayer is that all of us, and once again, it's attention. My hope and prayer is that all of us would go to the grave living a life of peace. That would be absolutely amazing. My hope and prayer is also that Jesus comes back. It's a little bit like, I want to go to heaven, but I don't want to die. For Jesus to come back, these things must first happen. Do I want them to happen? No. Do I want them to happen in a twisted way? Yes, because I want Jesus to come back. And so I hope and pray that we live lives of peace, but a part of me hopes and prays that we don't, so that Jesus can return and, oh, we then ready? Because then we go to level two. He says, that's just the beginning. That's phase one. Then he steps it up and he says, then you will be arrested, persecuted, and killed. 
You will be hated all over the world because you are my followers. And many will turn away from me and betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and will deceive many people. Sin or lawlessness is another translation. Will be rampant everywhere. And the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And the good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world so that all nations will hear it. And then the end will come. Does that sound exciting? Jesus coming back. Yes, I'm going to be hated and persecuted and killed. Maybe not so much yes. Maybe not so exciting. Maybe this is a little bit uncomfortable words ahead type of scenario. And so Jesus comes and he holds us. And I wonder this morning, this evening, and I don't know what the answer is in my life. I honestly don't. Am I ready to be hated? You see, right now we live in an environment, we live in a culture where maybe some people look down on our Christianity, maybe they laugh at us, but we're not hated for what we believe. As a matter of fact, we're probably respected more often than not for what we believe. If we go knock on the door of the hospital next door and we say, listen, can we use up your parking because we need space for our services? They're like, you guys are Christian, you're probably nice people. Yes, sure, no problem. But there's going to be a time when the dial shifts, where their answer is going to be, oh, you guys are from the church, you follow the Jesus guy, there's not a chance you're using our parking. You on our property, Never. As a matter of fact, if we can get the opportunity, we're going to kill you. And that's not because I'm trying to exaggerate. That's because what Scripture says is that you're going to be arrested. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to be killed. What is your crime going to be? Your crime is that you love and follow Jesus. Some of us have experienced this. We have some opinion, some thought that maybe goes against what somebody else feels. And we live in a culture that's all about canceling. You know, if somebody doesn't agree with me, I must wipe them off the face of the planet. If somebody thinks different, they're not allowed to breathe the same oxygen that I do. And our crime, we love Jesus. He says it gets worse than the wars because we're going to be persecuted and killed. We're going to be hated all over the world. Not because you have random ideas, because you do vile acts. No, because you're my followers. Many will turn away from me, betray me, and hate one another. Actually, this evening today and this morning, this is actually what I wanted to focus on. And as I started preparing this message, I just realized there's too much else, but I want to just stand still here for a moment because we can't do much about the wars and the rumors of wars. Those things must happen. We can't do much about kingdom rising up against kingdom and nation against nation. We can't do much about that. That must happen. We can do something about whether we are going to turn away from Jesus and whether we're going to betray one another. You see, the context here isn't that people are going to betray and hate each other. The context here is that believers are going to betray and hate each other. Can I break that down for us really practically? That means the person sitting next to you, behind you, in front of you, is going to betray and hate you. But I hope and I pray that we can prepare ourselves to not be in that group. It says many, not all, will turn away. I believe, why will we turn away in those situations? We'll turn away in those situations when this Jesus parachute becomes uncomfortable. 
when we haven't grounded ourselves in the Word, when we don't have an understanding of who God is and we're following Him for what He can do for me, and now He's not really doing much for me, so I'm not going to follow Him anymore. When we don't have a good understanding of Scripture, of who Jesus is, of how He reveals Himself, when we don't, as Louis tweet or Instagrammed or what is posted there, when we have only been taught about avoiding suffering and we haven't learned how do we deal with suffering well. And suffering comes in many different forms. And most of us in some stage in our life, we're going to go through at least, if not many, periods of suffering. Maybe not to the extreme we read here, but maybe to the extreme that we read here. And then the question becomes, how are we going to respond? I believe we will turn away from Him and we will only turn away from Him if we don't have a healthy expectation of who He is of what He is doing, of how He works. I think if we are well-grounded, if we have an expectation that even in chaos, He is still God, we're probably going to draw near to Him. We're not going to betray and hate one another if we have learned to love one another. This passage says here that the love of many will grow cold. This afternoon, this evening, I want us to think a little bit, how do we keep our love warm? How do we make sure that should that situation arise in our lives, my love doesn't grow cold? I'm pretty sure if we were to ask for a show of hands, who here is excited about betraying and hating one another? Most of us probably aren't going to put up our hands. We're not signing up for that. So how are we going to make sure as much as we can that we don't become of those who betray and who hate one another? We need to find ways. This is what I wanted to focus on, but I'm going to drop this here, and hopefully the Holy Spirit will take this further. We need to find ways to learn to disagree well. A couple of months ago, weeks ago even, there was this thing in Canada where my, my brother's Canadian citizen now as well, so kind of was a little bit interested in what was happening there. These truckers, you guys hear about that story? Thousands upon thousands of truckers, literally drove into their capital city, Ontario, parked their trucks all over the place, and apparently hooted the whole time as well. Took turns hooting. So there was this massive noise in the city for three weeks until eventually the government, for the first time in their history, declared a state of emergency so they could enact emergency legislation to remove the truckers from Ontario, where they, these guys had just said, we're going to be here. And it started off as a protest against vaccine mandates, and I don't want to get into that too much tonight, but I do want us to look at this quote from the premier of that region. Its name is Doug Ford. Ontario is sort of the promise, and the premier of that promise. He acknowledges the vision in his family over COVID-19. At the same time, as he announced his government's plan for ending the province's vaccine passport system. Watch this. He says, the pandemic has fractured us as a society with differing views about vaccines, public health measures, and personal freedoms, Ford said during his news conference on Monday. All of it has polarized us in a way that we could never have imagined or could have never imagined. I've experienced this in my own family it's been one of the hardest things my family and I have ever gone through. This isn't some 
professor of psychology or sociology. This isn't somebody trying to kind of make a clever statement as such. This is simply a guy in his field of leadership saying what he has experienced. His family has been largely torn apart because they disagree about a vaccine mandate. You know, the danger that we're heading into is what if we replace that? And he says, it has fractured us as a society. What if we begin to say, whatever it is, has fractured us as a church? Wouldn't that be catastrophic? If we allow something else to be bigger and a stronger bond than the blood of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the fact that Christ rose from the grave. If I were to look at somebody else and say, I am more driven by our division, by our disagreement, than by the fact that we are brothers and sisters bound together by Jesus. And so, how do we learn to disagree? Well, in this context, it was vaccine mandates. This month, and I'm not saying that to, to lighten up, all of these things that I'm going to mention, they're significant. But, you know, this month, it's, is Russia right or is Russia wrong? Last year, it was Black Lives Matter or All Lives Matter. Next year, it's going to be the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And if we as Christians don't learn to disagree well, do you know what the outcome is that's going to be? I'm going to look at a brother who I disagree with or a sister who I disagree with. And I'm going to go the way of the world and I'm going to hate them and I'm going to betray them. Because I haven't learned to disagree well. I haven't learned to be able to listen. And you feel this way about vaccines. And I feel this way about vaccines. And you know what? I disagree with you. But I still respect your opinion. And more than that, I disagree with you. But I still love you. I disagree with you. But you know what? Come with me. Let's take hands. Let's worship together. Let's pray together. Let's come together around the cross of Christ. Because that is so much stronger than this topic that we are currently disagreeing on. Here I'm not talking about sin. I'm not talking about things that Scripture clearly says we must avoid. I'm talking about these modern realities that we're wrestling with, these opinions where we sit on different sides of the fence. And as Christians, are we finding ways to learn to disagree well? For me, this is one of the blessings of small group. I can't think of a better environment where we can learn to disagree well than in a small group. We come together, we worship, we study the Word together, and as we do that, guess what? We have different opinions. And we share those opinions, and guess what? Our opinions don't always line up. But I learn to listen to what you're saying. I learn to evaluate. I don't just judge it and cast it out and say, no, you're not welcome in the small group because you don't agree with me. No, this is only a homeschooling or a non-homeschooling small group. No, this is only a natural birth or a cesarean section small group. And so we can carry on over time all of these things which escalate into massive fights and have the ability to divide the church if we do not learn to disagree well. How do I keep my love warm? I think one of the ways is in fellowship. We're never going to learn to disagree well if we don't have anybody to disagree with. If we don't have people close to enough, close enough to us that we can begin to understand we disagree, we're never going to learn to disagree well. 
If we don't have people who we're committed to, even if we have disagreed this week, guess what? We're coming back next week anyway. And we're going to continue this conversation. And hey, there's some other people who can help us with this disagreement. Not to find out who's right and who's wrong, but help us to hear one another. Help us to love one another. Help us to extend grace to one another. We live in an environment, I mentioned this earlier, which is all about cancel culture. Someone tweets something 17 years ago which we didn't like. Guess what? We're going to cancel it. Example, this guy I just quoted a little bit earlier, Louis Giglio. He was asked to do one of the presidential inaugurations in the United States a couple of years ago. Some guys went and found a sermon he'd preached. I think it was 20-something years prior to that. One sermon they found on the internet 20 years ago. They didn't like something that he'd said in that message. They threw up a big political storm and he had to withdraw from doing the inauguration. You see, if someone doesn't agree with us in our modern culture, we just cancel them. They have no right to existence. And yet, I think Jesus says if we don't agree with him, he extends grace to us. Can you imagine if Jesus had just written me off when I disagreed with him as an unbeliever? No, he said, I'm going to extend grace. I'm going to extend love. I'm going to listen. I'm going to love. I'm going to care for. And as he did that, I learned to realize that most of the time I am wrong and he is right. The only time that it's not I am wrong and he is right is the very few situations where we both happen to be right. But I had to learn that I need grace poured into my life. I wonder what our environment, our social media would look like if rather than just canceling everyone we disagreed with, we were people who spoke grace and extended grace to those who have different views to us. In church, it's important that we understand not everyone is, we're not going to agree about everything. Even theologians, we have these conversations, you know, we have to think of policies and what do we believe? People ask us often, what do we believe? And they throw some contentious issue on the table. Theological thing. And my answer normally is a whole bunch of, some things are clear in Scripture, and it's great. We run with that. But theologians, far more committed, far more qualified, far more studious than us, over centuries have studied those same texts. And guess what? They don't agree. There are two, sometimes three different interpretations of these controversial texts. That's why they are controversial. So for us to think that suddenly now we're going to agree around the table is unrealistic and idealistic. To be great if we did, the chances are we're probably not. We're going to view, we're going to interpret the scriptures slightly differently. And guess what? That's okay. Guess what? You are welcome to interpret it that way. I will give you space and room and bless you and even encourage you to do that, but I'm going to disagree with you. When someone asks me the question, I'm going to give a different answer to what you give. We're not going to agree, but we're still in unity. I'm still got your back. I'm not going to turn on you. I'm not going to betray you. We view this situation, this text, the circumstance, whatever it may be, differently, but that doesn't mean that we're not completely in unity. Unity doesn't always mean agreement. Not too many married couples here, but you'll find that out soon enough when you're married. There's no way a married couple is going to agree about everything. There are going to be some things that we disagree with, and you know what? Sometimes it's okay. Sometimes it's 
warm pudding is better than cold pudding. No, cold pudding is better than warm pudding. Which one is right? No one is right. No one is wrong. We don't agree with it. But you know what? Sometimes we're going to have warm pudding. Sometimes we're going to have cold pudding. Sometimes you're going to have warm pudding and I'm going to have cold pudding. We're going to make space with each other. We don't have to fight about it just because we don't agree on that point. And so that thing carries through. It's interesting for me, Jesus' very last prayer for us. So he's just about to die. He's about to be hung on the cross. I think it's the evening before. He goes up to the Garden of Gethsemane and he prays in John chapter 17. Do you know the one thing that he prays for us? That we may be one as he and the Father is one. That there may be a unity amongst us. I hope and I pray that as believers, we would do whatever we can to fight for unity. Have you guys noticed this? Sometimes married people, you know this. Sometimes you have to fight for peace. Sometimes we have to be deliberately engaging and fight, not with one another, but fight to get to peace. We have to fight for unity. We have to contend for unity. We have to say, this brother, this sister is drawing away from them. I'm drawing away from this person. No, I'm going to deliberately fight not to. I'm going to have the hard conversations. We're going to pray together. We're going to press through because Christ wants us to be in unity even when we don't agree. And so are we prepared for when the world is turning on one another, when even elements of the church are betraying and hating one another, where are we going to fall on that divide? Or are we going to say, you know what, I have learned to disagree well. I don't agree with them, but there's no ways I'm betraying them. I disagree with them, but they're still my brother. They are still my sister. And then it ends with this crazy verse here in verse 14. So the love of many is going to grow cold, hopefully not ours. The one who endures to the end will be saved. And then verse 14, and the good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world so that all nations will hear it and then the end will come. And that is one of those passages that just breaks my mind. I don't get it. Because Jesus is saying Christians are going to be arrested. They're going to be persecuted. They're going to be thrown in jail. They're going to be killed. They're going to be turning on one another. They're going to be hating one another, betraying each other. But at the same time, there's going to be an opportunity for the gospel like never before. Isn't that a weird contradiction? Those who endure, those who hold on, those whose love do not grow cold, we're going to be able to preach like never before, reach people like never before, see people come to Christ like never before. So when we think about something like Ukraine, maybe a little bit off the rails like me and my prayer and I said this morning, my wife isn't here, so maybe I can say this a little bit louder. My prayer is very much for the people of Ukraine. And just as an aside, the stories coming out of Ukraine in the midst of the heartache and the tragedy are so beautiful. We have a relationship with quite a number of churches there. Some of our other congregations have sent missions team to, many, to Ukraine many times. A great relationship with the churches there. So in this week on the updates group, we're going to give through some information that obviously prayer, but other ways in which we can celebrate and support the church in Ukraine. And so keep an eye on that. But you know, one of the prayers that I'm praying in times like this, is God, how do I get into Ukraine? 
Right now, everybody is thinking, how do I get out of Ukraine? I wonder where is the church saying a little bit, how do we get into Ukraine? How do we step, how do we get into Russia? No one's going to Russia because the problem, no one's flying to Russia. And one of the problems is if you get into Russia, you don't know that you're ever going to get out again in the current world environment. If you get into Ukraine, you don't know that you're going to get out alive. Where is the church? Where are we saying? And the good news about the kingdom is going to be preached in the midst of the wars and the chaos and the world upside down to every nation. And then the end will come. And then the end will come. So Jesus, I want you, do you want Jesus to come? Once again, if I were to ask for a show of hands, most of us would say, yes, I want Jesus to come. Do we want the stuff that's going to happen before Jesus comes? Maybe my hand isn't going to be quite so excited about being up. But I wonder, how are you and I going to respond in those circumstances? Let's go. Let's be willing to go in the midst of the craziness because there's a door for the gospel in the midst of that hurt. I want us to read a a similar passage found in 2 Timothy. And so what's happening here is Paul, he's a bit of a father figure to this man named Timothy. Paul has been a great church leader. Timothy is now a great church leader. And Paul's coming to the end of his life. And Timothy's sort of in the prime of his life. And Paul encourages him. Paul writes to him. This is the second letter he's writing to him. number of years after the first. And we're going to get at the end to a passage that many of us who've been in church for a while probably know well. But hopefully... After this evening, we're going to read it a little bit differently to the way we normally have. So Paul writes to Timothy, and he's just encouraging him, teaching him as the letter goes on. And he says, you should know this, Timothy. In the last days, there will be very difficult times. That's a great word of encouragement, isn't it? For people will only love themselves and their money. They will be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents, And ungrateful. They will consider nothing sacred. They will be unloving and unforgiving. They will slander others and have no self control. They will be cruel and hate what is good. They will betray their friends, be reckless, be puffed up with pride, and love love pleasure rather than God. They will act religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly and stay away from people like that. Who are the people we must stay away from? From those people who say that they are following Jesus but are unwilling to allow the power of God to let them change. That's the people we stay away from within this context. People who are hypocrites about God, who are saying one thing. It's not that they're saying one thing and doing another. It's they're saying one thing and not letting God change them into that. All of us are going to fall short at one stage. All of us are going to say this is what God, Paul, this Same writer, he even writes at one stage, the things I don't want to do are the things I find myself doing and the other way around. What is the difference? My heart, I don't want to be that. I want to change. I want God to work in me. And that's what God is saying. People who don't want that, those are who we must stay away from. When we read this, we read that Christian life is different. Perhaps he has a great Bible study for you in this week. Take these first couple of verses of 2 Timothy. Make some bullet points in your notebook. Paul writes here, he says, Timothy, you should know in the last days there will be difficult times. Make a little smiley face to encourage yourself. And then say, people will love only themselves. That's the first bullet point. Secondly, love money. 
Thirdly, boastful. Fourth, proud. Fifth, scoffing at God. Sixth, disobedient to parents. Write down that whole list. And then come before the Holy Spirit and say, God, where am I with these? God, do I reflect you or do I reflect the world? If, the law, if these are going to be the things that the world is struggling with in the end times, God, help me to not struggle with these. I don't want to look the same as the world in the end times. I want to be part of your church. And Jesus, your church looks different to the world because you are different to the world. The world says an eye for an eye and a life for a life. Jesus says, love your enemy. Pray and bless those. Pray for and bless those who persecute you. It's different. It's not different because we're trying to see, okay, what does the world do? The world does black. Okay, we're going to do white. Okay, what's the world doing here? We're going to do the opposite. No. It's what is Jesus doing. And what Jesus is doing is different to what the world is doing. And so as we head into these last times, these are something that we can do about. We can't do anything about the wars and the earthquakes and the famines, except support in those times, but they're going to happen. We can do something about our response and our character. Are you prepared? And not only are you willing to be different, are you willing to work to be different? Are you willing to take this list and work and say, God, how am I going to work to not be somebody who only loves myself? Perhaps as you write these bullet points, you're going to be like, some things the Holy Spirit's going to say, you know, you're not perfect, but you're getting this one reasonably right. Well done. You've grown in this. There are going to be others that as you write, it's going to be like your fingers are going to burn and you're like, shucks, this one. God, I struggle with this. And then you bring it before Him in grace and in truth. And you say, Holy Spirit, Give me this power that we read about here. They will reject the power that could make them godly. Holy Spirit, I want to experience this power that makes me godly. Change me. Transform me. Are you willing to work towards that? And then Paul carries on. Then there are a couple of verses about prophets and false prophets and deception and all of that stuff, leading people astray. And then verse 10, carrying on. But you, Timothy... You certainly know what I teach, how I live, what my purpose in life is. You know my faith, my patience, my love, and my endurance. You know how much persecution and suffering I have endured. You know all about how I was persecuted in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. But the Lord rescued me from all of it. Here's a little verse you can underline, memory verse for the day. Yes, and everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It's exciting, isn't it? Eh? But evil people and imposters will flourish. It's like we're going to suffer persecution because we want to do godly stuff. But the evil people and the imposters, they're flourishing. God, life is not fair. And God is going to say, I know, get over it. Allow me to strengthen you in it. Life is not fair. They will deceive others and will themselves be deceived. What I love about this passage, apart from that reality at the end there, you know, that we're going to suffer persecution. I wonder how many times we say that when we're leading someone to Christ. You know, come to Christ and you can suffer persecution. Isn't that a great evangelistic message? Come to Christ and you can be hated and persecuted. 
No, come to Christ because He is good and because He is glorious. But also know that there will be persecution along the way and there will be hatred. But that doesn't change how good and how glorious He is. But when I read this, you know what I love about this passage? Within the context, once again, the context here is so key. Paul has just written, he says, Timothy, in the last days, it's going to be chaos. But look at my example. Timothy, you know me. You've seen my life. You know what I believe. You know what I teach. You've seen me deal with hardship. Let that example carry you. And then I read that, and then I ask myself, what is my life telling others about God? Not only in an evangelistic sense, but just in a Christ-like sense. What is my example to young believers? It's interesting for me, if you look at eldership in Scripture, and once again, there are a thousand different interpretations of what elders must do and mustn't do. And my answer to that is very simple. Scripture doesn't say. So if you want to do it this way, you're welcome. If a different church want to do it that way, they're welcome because Scripture doesn't say. But what Scripture does say about elders, if you summarize everything about Scriptures, of all the Scriptures that speak about elders, it all comes down predominantly to this one thing. They must be an example. Scripture doesn't say very much about what elders must do. It says a heck of a lot about who elders must be. Who must they be? They must be an example. They must be somebody that young believers can look up to, that other believers can look up to and says, that's what a Christian life looks like. And so I wonder, as Paul writes to Timothy, our lives, what are our lives saying? What is a demonstration of our lives saying to others about what a Christian life looks like? Not only when it goes well, but when it goes badly. You know, sometimes one of the biggest conversation killers is if you tell somebody you're a pastor, but sometimes you can't get away with it. So kind of, I like telling people kind of, you know, what do you do? No, I encourage people, or help people with their relationships. Sometimes it depends on, because people just get weirded. You're a pastor, ooh, and then the conversation just isn't the same ever again. But we were a hunting trip a while ago with friends of my dad, and obviously we've been there for a while, and now I'm a pastor now. And at one stage, I bumped my toe, but like proper hard, kicked a concrete wall, like a little concrete wall step, properly. And I had such a laugh because I didn't even think two seconds about it. But that night around the campfire, I think it was the night somewhere, I can't remember the exact detail, exactly when, but shortly after that, this guy, unbelieving friend of my dad, who's there on the hunting trip, he says, I can see you're a true believer because you didn't even swear. Something which is so far distant, removed from my mind, it wasn't a conscious decision it was just God has transformed and the world sees us different. It's interesting to me that from his mouth, the biggest witness to him about my Christian life in that week, I don't, it might have been something else, but the only one he vocalized was how I reacted when I smashed my toe. It said something to him about who Christ is in me. You see, the world doesn't only look at us when it's going well. The world wants to see how do we respond when it's not going well. Do we then still glorify God? Do we then still act in a way that's conducive to showing others about His character? Are we able to live lives 
that are examples to young believers about what a Christian life looks like. So once again, context is key. Paul has written, he says, in the end times, people are going to be crazy. They're going to be doing a whole bunch of nonsense. Don't be involved with that. Live differently. Then the bit we skip, they're going to be people teaching nonsense. Don't listen to them. But you've seen my life. You know what I teach. I've been a good example to you. Follow that, he says. And then he carries on. He says, but you must remain faithful to the things you have been taught. You know they are true, for you know you can trust those who taught you. And he can trust those who taught him because it was his mother and his grandmother. Paul wrote about it in the first letter. You have been taught the Holy Scriptures from childhood. And they have given you the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Christ Jesus. And here is that verse which we so know. If you've been around Christ for a while, you've probably heard this passage a number of times. Hopefully this evening, seeing it in the context in which it is written, changes it a bit. I love reading this passage of the Scripture out of context. I believe it applies completely when taken completely out of context as well, this particular verse. It just gives it so much more depth when we see it in this context. All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip His people to do every good work. That bit is always true. I honestly believe that. That's what I mean out of context. All of Scripture is always given to encourage us, to teach us, to equip us in every situation. I totally believe that. But it's interesting. Paul says in the midst of chaos, in the midst of this coming storm, in the midst of the rough seas that lie ahead, Do you know how you're going to navigate them? You're going to navigate them by following the example of Christ-like father figures, mother figures, elder figures, and by a life-giving map, the Word of God. It's going to show you in every one of the circumstances what is right, what is wrong. I love this bit at the end. God is going to use it to prepare and equip His people to do every good work. And I believe that applies in every situation. It applies especially in the situation, in the context in which it is given. In the midst of coming chaos. You see, are we prepared? Is our worldview ready for chaos? A part of me hopes and prays we never find out. A part of me hopes and pray our world never gets turned upside down. A part of me hopes and prays that it does because a part of me prays for Jesus to return. Do I want to go to heaven? Yes. Do I want to die? No. Do I want Jesus to come back? Yes. Do I want to go through the pain, the heartache, all of the rough stuff in between before he comes? No. But if we do go through it, how will I respond? Am I prepared? Perhaps I can put this in here. You know why we do Bible school? Because we're bored and we don't have anything better to do with our Tuesday nights and we're just looking for something to do. No. We do Bible school. Not as a nice added extra. Not as something which maybe one day I'll get time to be serious about the Bible. But because all of Scripture is given by God. What does this translation say? It's inspired by God. And it is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. 
It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip His people to do every good work. Do you know, you know why we do Bible school? That's why we do Bible school. You want to know why we do Bible school? Because maybe one day your world is going to be turned upside down. Little newsflash. If you're in Ukraine, Kiev right now, you are probably not going to be doing Bible school in the next six months. Make sense? Now is not the time to be doing Bible school when you're in Kiev. The time to do Bible school was last week, last year, last month. The time to do Bible school was when I was able to prepare. I can't be preparing myself in the midst of the chaos. When the chaos comes, I need to be prepared. There's this passage in Scripture which we often read, but kind of, I don't think we read enough and we don't allow it to sink into our hearts long enough. It speaks about ten virgins who are waiting for a bridegroom to appear, to come back. Exactly like we're waiting for Jesus to come back. Five of them They all have lamps. Five of them bring extra oil. Five of them don't have extra oil. What does that mean? Five of them are prepared. Five of them are ready. Five of them aren't. The Bible calls the five that are prepared wise and the five that are unprepared unwise or foolish. The five who are foolish, their oil gets finished and their lamps are empty. So what do they do? They turn to the nice, loving, wise five and say, will you give us some of their oil? What do the loving, wise five do? No. Can I quickly just throw this out there because we miss this sometimes? Sometimes when people ask us for things, the answer is no. I'm not saying don't be generous. I'm not saying don't be freely giving. I'm not saying don't have an open wallet. That's not at all what I'm saying. What I'm saying is the Bible calls the people who wouldn't give away what they needed for that time wise and the others foolish. It's easy for us to fall ourselves into a guilt trip and to think we must give everything away. Sometimes that's unwise. Because what would have happened to the wise if they had given away? They wouldn't have had either. And they also would have missed the coming. But we read this passage and we see the five wise and the five foolish. The five foolish, they go and buy more oil. And guess what? They miss the coming of the bridegroom because they weren't there. They weren't prepared. They weren't ready. My hope my prayer is that all of us would be ready. We would be prepared. We would be preparing ourselves at the appropriate time. And so I'm going to say this again. For us, Bible school isn't an extra nice to have. If you happen to have the time, maybe consider it. Not if we are living with the dream, the expectation, perhaps even more than that, the certainty that Jesus is coming. He is coming. I need to be grounded in the Word for my tomorrow. I need to be grounded in the Word for my marriage. I need to be grounded in the Word for my parenthood. I need to be grounded in the Word for my career. It's value in all of those. The context in which it is given. I need to be grounded in the Word. For when the clock ticks over, the world turns upside down. And I need to know which way to go. The Bible is living and powerful, and that's the context in which it is given there. I need a life-giving map, which I know how to read. I can understand it. I've been taught it. I love this about Timothy. Timothy, Paul doesn't say, Timothy, well done. You've read and studied the Holy Scriptures since you were young. No, you were taught. There was a time when somebody 
taught you. We need to be taught, all of us, the Word. We also need to study and read and all of those things. There is a time coming when Jesus will return. It's going to be glorious. It's going to be beautiful. So much of the church, we get so tied up into what is it going to look like when Jesus returns. Is it going to be this war or that war? Are we going to have a mark that looks like this? Or are we going to have a mark that looks like that? And just quickly, a little asterisk, the mark of the beast. Just read like two chapters before that, where it speaks about the mark of God. We missed that somehow. If you've got the mark of God, you're not going to get the mark of beast. Don't worry. Follow Jesus. He'll take care of you. It's not some underhanded sly thing that no one is ever going to know And if you're not conspiracy theorist enough, you're going to get the mark of the beast. It's not the way it works. You're going to be marked by God long before and sealed by the Holy Spirit, long before you can receive the mark of the beast. But the world is so, the church, sometimes we get so drawn up into all of those things that are a little bit foggy in Scripture. Concerned, what is the world going to look like here and there? You know what I'm more concerned about? What are we, the church, going to look like when Jesus comes back? What is the church going to look like in the end times? The church, just once again, we've said this a lot during the fast. I'm going to say this a lot in the next couple of weeks because I sense the Holy Spirit wants us to get this. When I say the church, you know what I'm saying? Not some set of programs, not a bunch of people that work at the office, not some distinct group out there. What am I saying? I'm saying you and me, the person to your left, the person to your right. That's the church. How are we, and obviously other churches, not only here, but you guys get what I'm saying. This is church, it's people, you and me, sitting here. How are we going to respond? How are you going to respond? When the switch gets flipped, the world gets turned upside down. When the uncomfortable becomes the normal. Are we prepared? Are we well prepared? For a time such as that. If we're not, I'm in that spot. I don't know if I am. God, how am I being prepared? Because it is coming. Perhaps in my lifetime, perhaps not. What I don't want is it to come in my lifetime and I'm unprepared. I haven't dealt with these issues in my heart. I haven't learned to disagree well. I haven't found ways to keep my love warm. So I'd like to pray with us that the Holy Spirit would lead us to keep our love warm always. Can we stand together? I'd like us to pray. Jesus, I want to thank you this evening that you are so incredibly abundantly good, Lord God. God, that you came from heaven to earth to make a way, Jesus, that you stepped into the midst of our brokenness. You came to this chaotic world, to make it right, Lord. But we also realize, Lord God, that even as you are making right in so many beautiful ways in our lives, in our relationships, in our careers, Lord God, in our hearts, in our souls, you're making right, Lord. That, Lord, on the outside, it it might just get a heck of a lot better, a heck of a lot worse before it gets better, Lord God. Lord, that time might come in our lives, And God, I pray that we will be well prepared, Lord God. I pray that our understanding of you would be so healthily grounded, Lord God. I pray that our relationships with one another would be so strong, God, 
that we would not go the way of the world, Lord God. We would not turn and betray one another and hate one another, God. I pray, God, that your church, this part of your church, but your church as a whole, God, that we would be part of those who go into every nation to preach, to bring people to the cross, so that the end can come, Lord. I pray that you would come and just Allow us in our hearts, Lord, to be prepared that we would be ready to be hated, Lord God. To be hated by those we least expected from. And that within ourselves, Lord God, we would deal with conflict so well. Holy Spirit, we ask for the power that can make us godly to work in our lives. We know we can't do this ourselves, Lord God. But we do also want to say, Maranatha, our Lord Jesus, come. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Shofar Christian Church. We believe that you enjoyed your time with us, establishing God's kingdom and His glory in your life. For more info, call us on 012-362-1363. Email us, pretoria at shofaronline.org. Browse our website, www.shofaronline.org. Or like us on facebook.com forward slash shofarpretoria.